So as Nick mentioned at the beginning, um, the Open Table is doing a series on anti-racism and spirituality, and we're covering um, different characteristics of white supremacy. Um, and so tonight we're going to be discussing three of them, um, defensiveness, fear of open conflict, and right to comfort. Um, these characteristics come from a list of, I think, 14 or 15 characteristics by um, Tima Okun, and we'll drop a link in the chat if you want to read the whole article. Um, but we didn't just make these up. This is kind of an established um, framework for analyzing what, what white supremacy looks like, how it's culturally expressed. Um, and for a lot of white folks, um, it can be really hard to see it, right? Because it's so normalized, it's so much a part of our life and our culture that it can be hard to imagine alternatives. So some of the themes that we are gonna talk about tonight, I know the first time I heard them, and, and honestly still, like regularly, I, I have moments where I'm like, is it really white supremacy culture? Or like, am I overthinking this? Uh, it can just be hard to imagine another way of living when this is, how we've been socialized our whole lives um, and over generations. Um, so that's kind of an overview of um, some of the things about this, this series that we're doing. So um, I think we can go ahead and um, share the slide that shows all three of them. So these are the three characteristics that we're discussing tonight. Defensiveness, right to comfort, and fear of open conflict. Um, so defensiveness, this is a concept that I think many people are familiar with generally, like in a pop psychology way, but not necessarily in a white supremacy way. Um, so defensiveness, the way, it, the way it works or the what it looks like in white supremacy culture is that a lot of energy is spent protecting power. So who's in power, not just specific people, but institutions, systems that uphold whiteness um, and keep white uh, keep power consolidated amongst white people. Um, and when that power is challenged or when that structure um, is challenged, uh, defensiveness is the response. Um, so criticism of those with power, again, people or institutions, is seen as threatening. Um, that conversations about reform, change, accountability can't happen because any of those criticisms are, uh, trigger a defensive response. Um, it's difficult to offer new ideas, um, you know, how we can do things differently. I'm thinking of, of things like schools, like education is a big one. Um, you know, how can, we, how can we make changes to improve racial equity? Oftentimes the white response is, is just defensiveness. Like we can't do that or like that's not, we don't need to do it that way. Um, and all of this is focused on protecting power. Um, and it takes a lot of energy, right? So a lot of energy is spent trying to make sure that people's feelings aren't hurt, that their power isn't being threatened. So um, it kind of acts as a buffer and it prevents um, change and progress. Um, it also shows up in white people um, defending themselves against being called racist instead of making changes to be less racist. Um, and it creates an oppressive culture where new ideas, criticisms, critiques cannot be raised. Um, so there's, there's a lot of ways in which this also hurts white people, right? Like if we are creating an environment where there's not honest and authentic dialogue, we're just responding to any challenges with defensiveness, we, we don't grow, right? And our, um, our communities don't benefit from the, the rich and vibrant feedback from everyone involved. 
Megan, do you have anything to add to that one? No, I think this is, I think this is a good start. Okay. Um, so the next one is right to comfort. Um, and these three we're grouping together because they kind of um, interplay quite a bit. They have, um, you'll see some overlap. So right to comfort. This one I think is challenging to, to really see in our lives. I don't go around thinking like, I deserve to be comfortable 100% of the time. <laughs> um, but when you look at our, our behaviors and our practices, um, the belief that those with power have a right to emotional and psychological comfort. So this can play out to where we criticize someone for the way that they've presented an idea. You know, you're getting too emotional, you need to calm down, I don't like the way you're expressing yourself, basically. Um, so it's, it's kind of, um, it's like they mirror them each other because I'm protecting my emotions by criticizing the way someone else expresses their emotions. So the, the idea that logic is more valid, logical thinking and, and reason is more valid than emotionality that is rooted in white supremacy culture. And there's also a gender dynamic to this too, right? A lot of the right to comfort stuff could also be um, like a heteronormative paradigm where women are viewed as more emotional and men are more logical. And therefore like, you know, women are, are seen in, in this like less serious way. Again, this is how um, the intersection of many oppressions um, can be illustrated. But of course tonight we are focusing on race. Just wanted to name that. Um, scapegoating those who cause discomfort. So putting all of the blame on someone because they made a situation uncomfortable. They ruined the party. They said something at dinner that <laughs> killed the mood, right? <laughs> um, and that it's that person's fault. They made everyone have a bad time. What, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just love each other? Um, why is this person making a problem by pointing out racism? Um, and then a false, a false equality with individual acts of unfairness against white people with systemic racism against people of color. Um, I've done some, a variety of anti-racism trainings where inevitably a white person in the audience is like, well, this one time my husband applied for a job and like a black person got it instead. So reverse racism, like that's, that is not real. Um, and equating an individual act of perceived unfairness is not the same as systemic racism. But our, our whiteness makes us feel like those th things are equitable. They're not. Um, and then finally, fear of open conflict. So in white supremacy culture, fear of open conflict manifests when we don't want to engage in these conversations. Um, when someone raises an issue that's challenging, a critique, um, a criticism, or even a new idea, um, the response to blame that person for raising the issue instead of actually looking at the issue. You know, you're causing a problem, you're creating a conflict, you're creating an argument. And so to prevent that conflict from escalating, white people actually tend to escalate it in a different way, in a way that protects our power. Um, an emphasis on being polite um, and equating anything that is difficult or hard as being rude or impolite or out of line. Um, 
I think all three of these characteristics um, could be seen in the response to Colin Kaepernick's kneeling, right? Like, I don't like the way that you're doing this. This is offensive to veterans or Americans or whoever, like this is not the, you know, the way you're raising the issue is wrong. And that prevents us or protects us from having to actually engage in the issue, which is racism. Can I add to here that I, what, what I think is interesting about this is that these tenets of white supremacy culture, they're easier to identify perhaps in white folks who are living them out, but because they're part of the culture and not endemic to just like people, um, anyone can play out any of these, right? So like defensiveness can be a thing that's um, used by any, regardless of racial identity, fear of open conflict can, af can affect anyone. Um, but we're kind of making the point that they stem from a particular ideology and um, culture that we perpetuated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I think these three are also not, like not every time we act out of defensiveness, fear of open conflict or right to comfort, not every single time is that necessarily a white supremacy response. Um, because these are also, these can also be responses to trauma, right? So we can all be triggered by something else in our life and respond with defensiveness. Um, I don't know, Megan, I feel like you, you can <laughs> take the lead on this one. Like these are trauma responses, but and. Yes, maybe one way we can talk about this is, um, oh my goodness. Um, that both of us, Angela and I, have been reading Resma Menachem's um, My Grandmother's Hands, which if you haven't read, you should read. And it has this thinking about how um, so much of what we're encountering now around racism, anti-Black racism, white supremacy, racialization is rooted in these traumatic experiences that are true of folks of color and Black folks. But also one of the things that Resma does really well is go back and trace the origins of white supremacy culture um, to like experiences of white trauma or European trauma or all these, you know, he kind of traces it back. And so um, it's not as if this culture came out of nowhere, that there's a deep soul wound, a deep, deep, and, and for many folks also a bodily wound that is playing out over the course of generations that we're feeding into. And so these behaviors are, um, they show up as culture and they show up as personality now, but they're rooted in pain and they're rooted in brokenness. And this is, that's kind of their framework through which we're looking at these. So we can see them as, you know, interpersonal dynamics that have to be resolved and as spiritual wounds that have to be tended to. Um, or to use Resma Menachem's language, he kind of talks about trauma as needing to be metabolized over the course of generations and that we can do the work of metabolizing that so that we don't speak out of and act with each other and with ourselves out of places of pain. Mm -hmm. What's what's the quote that I think we had talked about? It's trauma, trauma in a society looks like culture, but there's there's like the tear. I listen yeah, to trauma in a person looks like personality. Trauma in a family looks like traits or trends or something like that. And trauma in a society looks like culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um I think in some ways these three um, characteristics can, can be portrayed as positive things in white society. So fear of open conflict really elevates um, politeness and kindness and niceness. 
Um, you know, when you're being nice to someone, when you're not, you know, yelling or screaming or starting a fight or, you know, being a jerk to someone, um, then, then whatever you're doing is fine. And I think, um, we can talk about Midwest nice and, um, how that can also, uh, be very racist. Um, but we're, we're, we're able to operate in the world thinking, um, that as long as we're being nice, we're being kind, we're being polite, that we're not being racist. And that's not always true. So we wanted to um, give, do you mind if I pick it up from here, Angela? Yeah, go for it. We wanted to kind of give a more concrete example to unpack um, before. We, what, what we're hoping to do is stop being the ones talking and have all of us talking. And so um, we're going to break out into um, racial identity or racial affinity caucuses, which we, I want to acknowledge up front is messy, right? Because like it ends up kind of categorizing and putting limitations and so I just acknowledge for folks who feel slightly uncomfortable with it received heard understood acknowledged um, and try to hang with us and um, we think it's also important for kind of facilitating this conversation so before we get into that space we wanted to spend some time thinking through a kind of more concrete example of how these um, dynamics play out in real life in an extreme way but it only became extreme because it already existed and it could have happened for any of us and so um, we're thinking of the Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper um, situation that played out in New York. Hopefully most of you are familiar with it. Um, if you're not, we can post a link in the chat for later. Don't go look at it now. We can kind of briefly describe it. But um, a couple before the George Floyd protest, I think this was a couple of weeks before George Floyd, and in many ways perhaps was a catalyst for it, one of the catalysts for it. Um, there was uh, an incident in New York City in which uh, a white woman, a black man who was out birding in the park, asked a white woman who was out with her dog to put the dog on a leash, as was required by park rules. And the white woman named Amy Cooper um, uh, got very defensive. She got um, very upset and threatened to call the police on Christian Cooper. Um, and then did call the police on Christian Cooper, who had in no way approached her or um, threatened her, and did a, a very kind of like performative, I'm being threatened by a black man in, in Central Park, please come save me, please come rescue me, even though this man was standing like 20 feet away from her and had literally made zero threatening comments. And so, thank you, three days before George Floyd, thank you, Cecilia. Um, and so, and he caught the whole thing on tape. And so we want to, I'm assuming most folks are familiar as we go into groups, if you're not familiar with it, please just note that and you, we can talk about it a little bit further inside of the caucuses. Um, but we wanted to make the point one about the ways in which this um, right to comfort and the defensiveness and the fear of open conflict played out for Amy Cooper. I think it's also really worth noting, especially for the folks of color in the room, um, what was going on for Christian Cooper in that, um, in that situation. Like, how was he interacting with and navigating and playing out a particular response to, um, to this culture in that moment? And so, Angela, before I get into that, do you want to offer anything around Amy Cooper and um, thoughts on that, or have we kind of covered it? Yeah, I mean, I think I do. Um, I want to just name a few of the ways that she was operating out of these characteristics, and then we can dig a little bit deeper in the breakouts. Um, 
But the initial reason that this conflict started is because Amy Cooper was doing something that she wasn't supposed to be doing. She had her dog off leash in an area where we're supposed to be on leash, right? So as a white woman, breaking a rule, being called out on that and by a person of color, and her response was like massive defensiveness, like defensiveness that like escalated the situation dramatically. But, but the seed of it was she, she felt comfortable breaking a rule because why? Because she's probably because she's white, didn't really have anything to fear in that moment. So right to comfort being challenged and that challenge being met with defensiveness. Um, so I, I want everyone to be thinking about that as we go into our breakouts, like how, how those um, characteristics really um, like inform this whole interaction. So for the other side from, so there's Amy Cooper's response, which plays into these tenets of white supremacy culture so well. I also think that there's a story being told by Christian Cooper's response. He was incredibly, his tone was very even. He, he was very carefully modulating a situation that escalated very quickly and that became life-threatening for him, like in a way that I don't think he could have imagined when the encounter initiated. Um, he was also very careful at one point in the video to say, please don't come closer to me. Please don't come closer to me. We see here as well, as we talked about earlier, this insisting on politeness, that he was very careful to say please and thank you in his comments to her. And I'm also, when I put in the apology apologize note here, I don't know if any of you saw the Michigan, the recent Michigan encounter between um, a young black uh, woman with her mother and um, a white couple who were leaving at Chipotle who jostled the young girl and the young girl asked them to apologize. And when they, she asked her to apologize, they got very defensive and um, very angry and refused to do it and, and got in their car they got into like a verbal altercation and got into their car. And then as they were reversing, the car nearly was like going toward reversing toward the mother. And so the mother tapped a hand on the back of the car to say, hey, I'm here. And the woman, the white woman jumped out of the car with a gun and trained a gun on these two and told them to back off because she felt afraid for her life in that moment somehow. And ended up, this couple ended up getting arrested. But as I was comparing that video with the Christian Cooper, it just had me thinking about how much for folks of color, there's a, a calculation made between like insisting on these boundaries and um, insisting on being seen as human and ensuring defending your own personal dignity and then also ensuring your personal safety. And there's a moment in the Christian Cooper, Amy Cooper video when she's moving aggressively toward him. And you can kind of see he stands his ground. Like he, he doesn't move toward her. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't get aggressive anyway, but he does kind of like refuse to, to step back. And I saw that, I interpreted that as this kind of like having to make a choice between I have like, I'm, I am maintaining my personal dignity. I will not back down. And he's also kind of playing out what's the consequences for my personal safety in making this choice. And so um, I'm hoping we go into these caucuses really thinking about the behaviors that we have at hand um, for us, depending on our identity, where we're located to either survive these kinds of encounters or the behaviors that we occasionally weaponize um, in these encounters. Um, so just wanted to offer that as a reflection that there's, there's two stories being told in all of these um, around about what white supremacy culture looks like and how it shows up for you regardless of where you identify.
Any other comments? Any? Okay. I think let's go ahead and dive into you. Nick, are we able to dive into our caucuses? Yeah, for sure. We're, we're ready to go. Two for the white folks and one mm -hmm. for the folks of color. Okay, great. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so the way this is going to work is uh, I'm opening the rooms right now and uh, you'll see a little pop-up window and all you got to do is click join breakout rooms. Uh, I Hopefully I got um, all BIPOC folks, Black, Indigenous, and other non-Black people of color into the same caucus group. If I mess something up, it, it's totally okay. Just immediately leave the room, come back into this main room, and I will move you to another caucus space. But um, not going to claim that I did everything perfectly here, but just like bear with us and, and we'll get you in the right space. Can I make one more quick comment? So we want to have time just to unpack this in these groups. That's what we're going to use this for. When we come back, we're going to be thinking about this through the lens of spirituality and a little bit of mysticism, just a smidge, a little dose. Um, and so as you come to the end of your conversations, if you have time, start thinking about what are the spiritual resources that you lean into when you're trying to make sense of these dynamics. And Laura is asking about caucus. We just mean small group. Um, so in this case, we're doing uh, caucus meaning kind of like a contained, like a container for a specific uh, topic or community or thought. And so in this, we just mean small groups in this case. And for those of you who are on Facebook Live, um, because these breakout rooms are, are going to be lasting a decent amount of time, we've, we've asked some of our folks uh, to stick around and engage in this conversation um, over Facebook Live. So, so some of the folks who are on the screen now are, are here for that. So feel free on Facebook Live to put in your own comments and questions as we engage in a conversation. Um, so um, there's a couple of questions that um, Angela and Megan prepared beforehand. Um, and they'll be discussing some of these within their own the caucusing breakout rooms as well. Um, but one of these um, applies more, I feel like, to white folk. Um, and that question is, have you ever been caught breaking a rule, doing something you shouldn't have done, and how did defensiveness show up in your reaction? And what's another way you could have responded? Um, which I think is an important question, especially considering the Amy Cooper story. <laughs> Um, and I'm also the one moderating the Facebook chat, so feel free to put questions as well in there, um, and I will post that very question um, in the Facebook chat as well. Hey, Maddie. Yeah. Uh, do you want responses from us, or are we waiting for responses from the Facebook Live? From us. Sorry for the for the confusion. This is a conversation amongst amongst ourselves about okay. um, about the Amy Cooper Christian Cooper um, situation and the way that defensiveness, racism, um, anti-black racism specifically shows up. Um, okay. Um, I don't know if mine is something that I did, but it it felt like I was being defensive. Um, when that situation happened, there was another group. Um, it's, I think it's called Op Embrace or Open Embrace or something like that. And it's geared towards uh, families and parents. And they were having a, uh, a Zoom talk like this. And it was called 
how can we raise our kids not to be like Amy Cooper? And um, my question was, well, how come we're not calling it, how come we don't raise our kids to be like Christian Cooper? Because he's the one that was in the right and he wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, and somebody in the group responded to me, well, she, don't you think that you need to be looking in yourself to be looking at ways that you are defensive and that you are, that you could change? What are ways that you're, that maybe you're not being outwardly racist and you don't even know it? And so it was good for me to say, oh yeah, what are ways that I'm similar to Amy Cooper that I can change and that I don't want my kids to do? Um, so I don't, and I, I felt like defensive when I was asked that, when I thought, gosh, I don't, shouldn't we be more like Christian Cooper and not wondering why we don't want our kids to be like Amy Cooper? And so it was a good exercise for me to see how I was like this person and what are ways that I've done in the past that were similar to her behavior. Um, and I found that helpful. Yeah, thank you. For no, go ahead, Maddie. Oh, I was gonna say, I um, the thing I thought was really interesting about the Amy Cooper situation, I remember seeing, like, right after that happened, it was, you know, before George Floyd's murder, um, but seeing how, you know, it's, it's so quick for, I think, us white people to distance ourselves even from the Amy Coopers um, and be like, oh, well, she probably falls onto this political spectrum, or this folks this way, see how even um, white pluralism shows up in spectrums and how there was an article I saw, I can't remember where it from, but shortly after this situation happened, talking about how white liberalism still allows for a, like a scapegoating of racism in ourselves. Um, and I remember reading that article and like, it, it hit me in a certain way because it's so, it's so quick to be like, how could she do that when that is also me too? I think the beauty of, that I found in not beauty in a, in a beautiful way, but beauty in a, um, that it was captured way and, and just the realness of it was, I don't think any BIPOC person was at all surprised by Amy Cooper and Amy Cooper's behavior. What was beautiful about it, it was that it was captured for all the world to see. And when I say that, I mean, when she, you could see her wheels turning, you could see what strategy and what tactic that she was going, that she wanted to use in order to intimidate and to scare, try to scare or intimidate Christian Cooper and how she so quickly went to the police. Um, I think that that has, we have seen in the last two years, I know, with the various women who have called police on children selling lemonade and waters, on black people and brown people having picnics um, in a park um, on the West Coast. Um, people calling police on uh, their peers who are studying in their dorm um, on a college campus. 
um, all of those types of ways in which this has occurred that we know of. Um, right here in Missouri and St. Louis, a woman calling the police on a gentleman as he was entering into his own apartment complex um, in which I believe she was a visitor. Um, all of these ways in which um, whiteness is weaponized towards folks of color. Um, and so the beauty was being able to um, not gaslight myself and to be able to say, see, did you see this choice was made, this choice was made, this choice was made, because she made several choices um, around her choice to bully Christian Cooper with whiteness. I have also found it interesting um, in recognizing the Christian Cooper in me, um, the internal racialized inferiority in me of needing to smooth this out, to apologize, um, when um, Amy Cooper started having um, uh, retribution to her behavior, right, consequences for her behavior, that he started apologizing, saying, you know, it really shouldn't have gone this far, all the different things, as opposed to being quiet in that moment and allowing things to play out. He felt a need to smooth over and navigate and to um, be the nice guy in that situation. And not that I believe that he should have done any more than he did. I also don't think that it was his responsibility to apologize for her behavior. And so it was a very interesting video about the racial construct in the United States and I would say in our world. This situation makes me think a lot about what versions, if any, of black men would be found non-threatening to whites and to white women. Uh, I think about Christian Cooper, who was bird watching, which is not like an aggressive thing. He wasn't a linebacker or he wasn't wearing a black hoodie. He wasn't doing anything that taken out of context you'd see as aggressive. I think about Henry Louis Gates, who was a esteemed academic who was trying to get into his own home and was arrested. And he was a man of some considerable age, kind of a middle-aged man. And he was still seen as breaking into his own home. And so I think a lot of black people try to, because of the internalized racism that is in their own lives, try to dress a certain way or do their hair a way that is less threatening to whites around them. And I don't think that would be a surprise to any people of color that, for instance, if I grew my hair out as I'm doing now, someone just this week said, oh, are you getting wild? And I'm like, no, I'm not getting wild. I'm just, I just have hair, my hair's not cut short. But there's this element of if you show any pride in your culture, it's seen as like um, overtly aggressive. And, um, it just, it puzzles me that there's no version of the story. There's nothing he could have done to not make her feel threatened. Uh, he was minding his own business. And I wonder too, if I can, Garrett, is it, cause I, I think, you know, if I had a black son, I do have a black brother. I have a nephew. I have cousins, students, former students that I love dearly that are black men. Um, 
I wonder what that feels like to have a son who could be facing this at some point in time, right? Or you facing this. I think about this when you're talking about your hair growing out of your head as God intended um, means that you're getting wild. Um, that there are things going on. We just had on July 3rd, it was national, the National Crown Act Day, where in 2020, we are still, so this happened in 2019 for the first time, we're still having to legalize it being okay um, for Black women um, and Brown women to go to work and deem, be deemed professional for wearing their hair as God intended for their hair to be. Um, which, you know, because people can fire folks or not hire people around them having locks or braids or having curly hair as opposed to smooth hair. And as a person who used to navigate that choice all the time of going into an interview, recognizing, well, I better flat iron my hair today if I want to get this job. And then also the consequence of showing up three months later with natural hair, and I'm assuming, even though it might not have been said, but the thought was, is she getting wild? Is this not somebody who we thought this was, right? And so I find these things interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that, that both, you know, you, Cecilia, and Garrett had touched on that I, that I think uh, is important to, to note is the fact that, you know, just getting back to the fact that um, Christian Cooper felt like he had to smooth things over. And the fact that in a lot of spaces like this gets to that whole idea of white tears uh, because something, something can happen. And then uh, all of a sudden it evokes a response uh, from a white person. And then in order to, uh, in order for the BIPOC folks to feel safe, you almost have to go to the white person and make sure that they are doing okay. Um, Especially when Amy Cooper went and called the cops, um, knowing that that was like a weaponizing thing to do. Uh, because she knew who the cops were gonna take, wh which side the cops were gonna take uh, when they came. And so she felt like she could call the cops. And so it, it's important for us to, to think through the ways that we weaponize our own fear and, and weaponize our own tears in order to make sure that we're okay at the expense of black indigenous and other people of color. And I think like going off of what you said, Nick, it even is like specifically white woman tears. I mean, there's a way that like white women and are allowed more emotions, I think too. Like I even wonder like how that situation would have, been, would have changed and talking about a, a cis woman, like as a cis woman, I, what if Amy Cooper would have been a cis man? Like what would have, how, how would even that have changed the dynamic too? Um, and there's a way that she weaponized, I think even her, the, her, the heteronormativity of her, of her identity to even in that, in those intersections. But I think even for me, like something that's been coming up, like in this conversation is I like, can think about the ways, like I think about like fear of conflict, how, I, that feels coming from a background that was very, that was white and white Christian and, and westernized Christian um, and how that was almost also viewed as sinful. And there was also an intersection of like 
well to engage with conflict and also to be, to be engaging with this idea of sin or something that is bad. And so there's also a way that I have been having to, I have to constantly unlearn what does it look like to distance myself from this like act of conflict or sin or whatever that is too, and how kindness has aligned itself in my upbringing with like in, in white Christian morals too. Um, thank you all for engaging um, in that fishbowl conversation. I wish we could have kept it going longer, but to be continued. TBC. Um, great. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I hope that that was, I know, at least for us, it felt like it was just the beginning of the conversation. Um, so that's always a limitation of these online platforms. We are going to spend a little more time in small groups in a few minutes. So whatever you're still sitting on, you can get out. Um, but at the end of our BIPOC caucus, we were making a comment about the need to speak up and the need to be in relationship with each other. And that's actually a really lovely pivot into bringing in the um, spirituality and mysticism piece. And so um, I'm going to just make a few comments about this. Let me share my screen again. Hopefully y'all can I do this right. Okay, that works, right? Everyone can see that? Okay, good. Um, Angela, feel free to jump in here at any point if you need to. Um, so uh, I'm going to share with you a framework that I use in my work that my team put together after the protests in after the Ferguson uprising. Um, but before I get into that, um, I in divinity school when I was in seminary loved, loved, loved studying mysticism because of its the ways in which it exists in the kind of borderlands and needs like porousness and needs gray area and also needs boundaries and it just feels like such a place where growth happens and so um i'm really glad that we're talking a little bit about spirituality and we're taking these really heavy big social issues and problems and distilling them through the uh, a framework around spirituality and mysticism um some of the gifts i think we see from this is that um these are life-threatening issues like bodily like they do physical bodily harm to us and they also break our souls and our spirits and that tending to our spiritual selves and leaning into some of the gifts that christian mysticism or zen mysticism or um islamic mysticism can or jewish mysticism can offer helps us um, tend those soul wounds and build that strength and resilience that really passes down generations. Um, it's also true, like Howard Thurman, one of the great Black American mystics, Thomas Merton, a great Catholic mystic, um, were really clear that their spirituality was the key to, it was, it was fun, it was founded, it was like rooted in deep relationship and a deep, deep, deep feeling of unity. That when they were most spiritually kind of enlightened, what, how they experienced that was in radical unity, radical community. And that that's actually what turned both Howard Thurman and Thomas Merton were very outward focused. They were very like social justice, you might say today to use today's parlance, because they understood through those deep experiences of radical unity that we all like the only way for all of us to get to have that experience of God and that experience of each other was through um, pursuing justice. That, that that's the work that that binds us together. And then I also think, and you, um, I'm going to unpack this a little bit in the model I'm about to share with you. But the other thing that deep spiritual rootedness does, and that um, a giving over of ourselves into our mystical selves, is that it also tells us into, into 
what what in my organization we would call prophetic action um, and into change. And, and for this, I'm, I'm using the example of Jarena Lee, who is the first black preacher, woman preacher, black female preacher in the African Methodist Episcopal tradition way back. She was a contemporary of, oh my gosh, who founded the Amy's? Um, Richard, um, oh my God, this Richard is Thank you, Richard Allen. She was a contemporary of Richard Allen. He was the founder of the AMEs and was a deeply spiritual woman, deeply connected to her um, kind of mystical relationship with God. And that that is what propelled her to insist that she be allowed to preach, that she be allowed to lead um, in her community. And she was very, very persistent about this. She planted the seed and like five or seven years later, the bishops in her community were like, you know what? Um, you're right, like we didn't want to pay attention, but, but now we got to pay attention. You, you absolutely are a preacher. You absolutely need to be out in front leading our people. And so, um, so, but for her, all of that was rooted in her experience of God and her experience of her faith. So I just um, am so grateful for what we get from these spaces. And I want to share now, um, in my organization, Faith in Action, uh, which is a kind of national network of faith-based community organizing groups that do work around mass incarceration and immigration reform and um, wage equity and all these things. Um, we have a model that we developed that our clergy and leaders developed after they had this really profound experience in Ferguson during the Ferguson uprising after Michael Brown was killed. And it was because all these clergy who led congregations across the country um, found themselves all of a sudden in radical relationship um, and community with these organizers in the street. These just like the locals of, of Ferguson and these, these young black organizers who were not in their churches, were not in their congregations, but were out in the streets um, leading the charge for justice in Ferguson with a really radical imagination for what that looked like. And that encounter with these organizers and with the militarized police in Ferguson completely disrupted the way that they imagined their own leadership and um, the way that they imagined the, the work of their congregations. And so as a kind of as an organization since, we've been leaning into this process now of um, what are the radical, what are the encounters that really break open or break apart our existing notions of reality or existing understanding of what's normal and make it possible for us to imagine a different way of being, a different way of being together, a different way of leading in this community, in this society. And um, almost without fail, a new imagination gives way to um, radical change, to action, as it did for Jarena Lee and as it continues to do right now in this moment. So um, we don't have time to get really, really deep into this. Um, we often, when we're inviting folks into uh, this, mo this reflection model, we often use the example of Moses in the burning bush as an example of a kind of encounter that completely turned over um, Moses's understanding of how the world worked and of what was possible and led to the freeing of the slaves from Pharaoh in Egypt. That Moses had this encounter with the this bush that happened to be burning and that disrupted entirely his um, notions of, of what could be in the world and made it possible for him to imagine something that he could not imagine him before. And we saw what happened with Moses. And so um, to take us into our next small groups, which will be mixed groups, we're not doing the racial, racial caucuses anymore. We're just gonna be talking in small groups with each other. 
I really want to encourage us to um, maybe surface a moment in your life when you had an encounter that really disrupted you, that maybe changed the way that you imagine things. Um, let me see, I have a, what are the other questions I had come up with for this, Nick? Can we put them in the chat? Yeah, there we go. I was like, here I am riffing and I know I have deliberate questions on this. So take a few seconds to think about what are the, what are the moments in your life that um, have really kind of pulled a, put a tear into your understanding of reality and, um, and has broken open your imagination? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jeremy. How are you practicing a bigger imagination for yourself, for your family, for your communities, for the society? This is a moment that's ripe for really rich imagining. And then let's loop in our spirituality. Like what is it in your tradition, in your understanding of um, mysticism, of theology, of your own kind of spiritual connectedness that helps you, that, that unlocks your imagination? And if you don't get to any of these questions, if you can't get to all of them, maybe start with that third one. I'm actually, I think, um, leaning into the gifts in our spiritual traditions is the kind of starting point for the rest of this. So I know we're coming up on the end of our time. We're going to try to push over just a few more minutes. I know many of you have to jump off, but if you can, um, we'll take maybe like eight minutes for this and we'll come back and we'll wrap up. Okay. Are we Facebook living again? You know it. <laughs> Did you see me try to whisper like, I don't know. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. That little live button is still on. So we're still going. <laughs> I don't whisper. Or maybe if I whisper, they won't hear me online. <laughs> okay. So we have about eight minutes to discuss this question. I don't know uh, if anybody would like to take one of the questions for us to discuss as a group here. I could just offer um, some thoughts on the second question. How are you practicing a bigger imagination for yourself, for your communities, for our society? Um, that's just something I've been reflecting on recently with um, the converse, conversation around defunding the police or abolishing the police. Um, it's something that, uh, you know, those, just those simple words, like, cause a lot of defensiveness um, to come up in white people, especially in this country, um, because we've been trained that way, to, you know, think that we can't do without them. And so I think this call, like, we're, this that mo this is a moment where we're being called into a, a bigger imagining or reimagining of what can be um instead of just settling and saying like well i guess you know life and society is always going to be this way it's always going to be violent so we just have to keep it the way it is um so i've just been really appreciating that um and being pushed um to think beyond how it is right now and to think like okay how can we be in genuine relationship with people like directly right in our neighborhood so that um, people don't feel the need to call some call the cops right away when something doesn't seem right to them. Um, so just, yeah, just some thoughts on that. I have been encouraging me and others to not want to go back to normal. That if I am giving myself or anyone else any permission to go back to normal that we're giving ourselves permission to go back to a very racist very narrow way of being for a good portion of the population and so um what does it mean to think a new normal what does it mean to actually be revolutionary um how have we been um 
cajoled into being fearful of revolution, which really means starting something new. So um, I've been sitting with that tension of that um, and sitting with the tension of um, being a black person who in many ways has a lot of privilege. Um, the only privilege I don't have is being white and being male. Um, that I am actively giving myself permission and looking for a new normal um, and recognizing that I could be giving up some of my own personal power and that that is okay. That is more than okay. So like understanding that like working to dismantle race, racism and anti-blackness has to take place on multiple planes like at the same time. So you've got kind of like a, you've got the work that we have to do on ourselves because of our socializations. We've got the work that we have to do with our family and friends. We have the work that we have to do in the larger community as well as in our institutions and in and, and all the systems. Um, so we've got, we've got multiple levels where we're supposed to be working at this. And one of the things that, that I've been like just learning about myself that's helping me to reimagine the way I work in these spaces because I grew up in kind of a, I want everybody to like me kind of way, uh, definitely fear of open conflict. I would just avoid that stuff like crazy. And I realized that at the root of that for me was the fact that I had kind of, uh, I grew up in a religious tradition uh, that taught me to abandon myself, to not trust myself, to not trust my heart, to not really know who I am because who I am is just bad at the core. And, um, and so what I've been trying to do now is uh, sit with myself, like sit with those feelings and emotions that come up that, that don't feel comfortable for me um, within myself, as well as whenever um, I encounter disagreement uh, with my family and friends um, because I need to be able to sit in that tension uh, to be able to continue to move the work forward. Um, but in order to move the work forward, I kind of have to know who I am and, and like what I'm standing for uh, and, and be willing to like own that and set that as a firm boundary as I engage in conversation. Um, because I know like in the past I've gotten better at it, but there's still a lot more work to do, but I, it's, it's something where I, I would cave or, or give a little bit when I didn't really feel authentic to do so. And, and I know that it's, it's a way of, I know that for me, it was a way of practicing kind of like this white solidarity where I'm just going to, okay, great. Um, and, and so for me that that's like my learning uh, that I've been trying to lean into. So that way, the uh, anti-blackness, the white supremacy culture, the racism can all be dismantled because it's going to be hard conversations and it's going to be um, helping people to wake up uh, to, to, and to reimagine the way that structures can be uh, because the way that our country was built was with the intent of excluding um, BIPOC folks and not just excluding, but, you know, <laughs> enslaving, uh, killing all of that exploiting yeah yeah i just agree with what with what both cecilia and nick said that revolution and change has multiple layers and i don't want to go back to a time the news doesn't affect people i don't want to go back to a time where um 
the white members of my family and my friend groups don't want to talk about race with me. I don't want to go back to where we just ignore things. Um, even though in some ways that's a safer space for me. I was raised in a home where conflict, I would not say people were fighting all the time, but black folks just, conflict is just kind of how we get along sometimes. And like, even when you're joking around, it's louder, it um, can be more aggressive. And I'm used to that. And it, I had to learn how to be around folks who don't communicate that way. And I'm kind of ready to be back in an arena conflict is productive or conflict is leading somewhere, conflict is taking us to a higher level of existence. I don't want to go back to where we're just being nice to get by with the status quo. So bring on the disruption, I say. And I'm trying to figure out what that looks like for someone who is 40 and not and for someone who wants to be before he checks out, you know, what does that look like? I've also been speaking some really clear things, and I can tell that it makes people very uncomfortable, um, especially as a person who does a lot of social justice work in um, multiracial anti-racism movement building. And I have just been sharing with people, if we are not all centered on the liberation of Black lives, then what are we doing? And I can tell that people look like, what? what like everybody like and I will continue to say if we are not focused on the freedom and the liberation of black lives of making sure that the sand at the bottom of the ocean rises because if the sand at the bottom of the ocean rises if we're trying to have some type of hierarchy then what we know is the water and the waves and everything else is going to rise also so as we're talking about liberating black people and black people rising then so will latinx folks so will lgbtqia folks so will women so will every other oppressed group rise if we if we help the least of the least of those be free and that's where i'm centering my work yeah, we um, we just wanted to hear from a handful of folks um, before we move into our closing. Um, if you want to share how you're practicing a bigger imagination for yourself and or how does your spirituality or spiritual tradition help you to broaden your imagination. Um, so maybe if three people wanted to share or, or maybe like what's what's hard about this question? Like I feel like when people don't have a ready answer, like is is this a new concept like we're struggling to broaden our imaginations because we're just we're just starting to do that or we don't have a spiritual practice yet that helps us do that but we want one what are what are your reactions to this question um i i was struggling with with the answer to this and then i i heard myself saying something that i'm i'm gonna have to think about a little bit more because um i realized that my imagination um has transformed from the um like in like this post-evangelical faith that I'm living in, um, undoing the concept of that heaven is something that we're looking forward to. And um, instead now heaven is something we create here on earth and we participate in um, creating a more peaceful, beautiful, equitable place. And so that's kind of my, I suppose my imagination for how my faith is, is um, forming what I'm participating in. Thank you for sharing that. Kathy, were you also going to say something? Yes, so what I was going to say is very 
similar to that. So besides the open table, I also go to uh, attend Centers for Spiritual Living and I'm a, a prayer practitioner there. So, you know, one of the big focuses for Centers for Spiritual Living is a world that works for everybody. And you can't have a world that works for everybody if it's really not working for everybody. And so you have to start, you know, you have to start so that it is working for everybody. And, and you know, like she said, it's us working together. It's, heaven is here. <laughs> you know, it's not out there. And it's how we treat each other and live our lives holy, so. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, anyone else? I know there's some responses in the chat too. Um, so feel free to, to drop a comment in the chat um, about how you're imagining differently or what struggles you face in, to try and, and broaden your imagination, what spiritual practices help you with that or that you're trying to change. Um, so, I grew up uh, in the Jewish faith, although I wouldn't say very strongly, <laughs> and um, I've, you know, kind of gone to different uh, faiths over the years and gone to different churches and tried different things. I'm not really uh, big on, uh, what's the word? Um, organized religions um i have a hard time connecting in that situation but um but i i am trying to um define my spirituality come come into my own vision of what that is and strengthen my relationship with god um and i really like what people said about having heaven be here on earth which i certainly believe i never thought of it in those terms but um but i like that a lot so thank you um anyway mm -hmm. that's it thanks Thank you. Well, that actually might help us get into you. I'm going to kind of top our little practice short a little bit um, and invite folks. What we'll do is um, a practice in brevity, which is inviting folks to distill. If you can kind of visualize clearly a moment in which you felt when, um, in which you felt that all the kind of atoms in the universe aligned for things to be perfect and right and just hopefully you have access to a moment like that it might be a deeply an exchange you had with a family member a moment you had out in nature just a moment where everything felt super aligned um, and that this is the world as it should be um, and maybe it only lasted for a second um, i have a moment like that that's related to a bite of food that i had on a dock in san francisco where everything was just perfect and in the chat box, as Maddie is, or Nick is going over our final um, announcements, in the chat box, maybe share a six word description of that moment. Maybe it's about where the sun was in that moment, if you were outside, 
Maybe it's about what the ground felt like. Maybe it's who was standing across from you. Maybe it's what you were eating or wearing. Just six words that bring to life that moment for you when the universe was perfectly aligned. So um, thank you so much, Megan and Angela, for leading us in this conversation tonight. Um, can we give it up for them again with sign language clapping, um, American sign language clapping?